There are over 44,000 species on Earth threatened with extinction, and many more have not even been discovered yet. However, only a small handful of these endangered species actually get conservation attention and funding. This, of course, includes the big charismatic mammals like pandas, tigers, and elephants. But what about the rest of the 44,000 species threatened with extinction? Can we save them all? Today, I invite Scott Tragizer, executive director of the Biodiversity Group, as well as co-founder of the Creative Conservation Alliance, to discuss this imbalance and what we can do to save these species that are not getting enough funding or conservation attention. We also discuss how saving a species even works, because we may hear that, oh, this NGO is saving this rhino species, or this NGO is saving orangutans, but how exactly does this work? What does saving a species actually entail? There are so many gold nuggets in this conversation, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode, we chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on. So let's start with what do you do and what's your mission? Save wildlife, like all of us, right? <laughs> it's, uh, but in general, like the really overarching view, it's the protect life overlook. It's these species and habitats that other organizations tend to neglect. They overall don't receive a adequate conservation attention. And that's kind of a kind of an ambiguous term. Uh, we can get into that later, but it's uh, there's not a lot of data, comprehensive data for us to understand who's doing what and so what qualifies as life overlooked. But in general, we think about it as like reptiles, amphibians, mushrooms, and fish, stuff like that. All right, so it's to save species that have not received enough conservation attention. So why do you think that is? Why are there species that don't receive enough conservation attention? Well, the obvious reasons why uh, when you try to ask somebody, let's let's protect the snake species, they, they tend to not contribute much financially. <laughs> so it's these things that, I mean, generally we're asking in the conservation field for somebody to care about something, a species other than their own and somewhere in a place other than their home. And those are two giant obstacles for us as conservationists to overcome. If you're working locally in like, if I was working in the United States and trying to protect something, say within Arizona, where we're based, life would be a lot easier because people can see it's in their own backyard. It's kind of like a yes in my backyard kind of situation. But when I'm asking somebody to protect something that is about as different from their mammalian lineage as possible and uh, in a place very different from their own, they struggle to understand why that's important. Maybe they'll understand, but but they don't feel why it's important. So then they, uh, it's it's always a struggle to be able to get buy-in for people to be able to care about these things that truly do need conservation attention. Like the tropics are the most diverse, obviously, and so it's the things there need a lot of a lot of help. Um, but to try and get convince people to do that is quite a challenge. So what that's kind of where we're fitting in, and where it's, our partners are fitting in, where we're trying to plug all these holes in the conservation field, where you know rhinos get adequate conservation attention relative to other species. I don't think we're going to be, you know, losing uh, southern white rhino. Uh, so it's like something like that, but we are going to lose several other species of mammal. And then so the idea is to be able to uh, really effectively figure out where to put our effort and and how to do so. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I like how you mentioned rhinos. And I think, you know, rhinos belong to this group of popular charismatic mammals that get most of our 
attention. So for example, you know, anything that's big, cute, or colorful, so pandas, tigers, elephants, they get most of our attention. But then you have all these other species, like you mentioned, like reptiles, amphibians, fish, that are just neglected. So can you explain to the audience why do we even need to consider these other species? And what's the importance of conserving these other species as well? I mean, it's the importance of saving anything, right? It's So it's multifactorial. So it depends, you know, when I talk about this, it would depend on the audience. Uh, sometimes, you know, you can have the, the uh, like, ecosystem services arguments where, okay, well, if we lose bees and pollinators, then it costs X amount for the economy, or if we lose, like, freshwater filtering services and that kind of thing. So you can always push those out, and they're very valid. Um, that is, they're great reasons. Uh, ultimately, personally, I don't think that's the correct reason to justify why we're going to save something. It truly is just to, to save it because it deserves to live. I mean, it's, it's sad that I even have to say that, but it's like, you know, this living piece of art took millions of years to evolve and it, you know, it's, it's likely conscious and it, it has a life, it has goals and, you know, it, it's not morally acceptable for us to extinguish that lineage it's not that's not our decision to make if it happens naturally sure but we're not acting naturally anymore so it's you know these things certainly they should be perfectly worthless they shouldn't their lives shouldn't be like the the worth of their lives shouldn't be based on how much uh they contribute to our economies necessarily it should simply be that they exist and just like we do and we have a right to exist and so do they um but you can you can have all kinds of nuanced arguments about this, and I'm very willing to have those. Um, but in general, that's kind of the scheme. No, that makes sense. And when you say these species aren't getting, quote-unquote, the attention that they deserve, is it possible to tease apart what exactly is the, the cause of that? Is it like, for example, a lack of funding or a legal shortcoming or a general lack of knowledge or awareness about these species or something else? Yeah, excellent question. Because in generally, generally we know how to save things. It's not that research, more research is necessarily needed to save life on Earth. Uh, it's we just need buy-in from governments and communities and various people to be able to act. And so we have things like the IUCN, which demarcates if, if something is, you know, critically endangered, endangered, uh, vulnerable, not near threatened, that kind of thing. And so we can say if something requires attention. And most things, I mean, actually not most things, there's quite a few that are not assessed yet, um, but many things we do know whether they need attention, but whether or not they're getting that attention is another question. So the, comp the conservation community is all struggling and we're not uh, as cohesive as we could be. So we don't have any database even, uh, we, well, we the closest database we have to, to knowing all the conservation organizations and, and who's doing what is connectingconserve.org, which is something that uh, the biodiversity group has created. And so with this, we are aggregating all this information from uh, the most cohesive data set of all the organizations on earth and what they're doing and how they're doing it. So then we can say, okay, if there's one critically endangered species and uh, it has 50 organizations working on it and gets, you know, $5 million a year. And then there's another critically endangered species who gets, zero attention there's no funding towards it like and that so that one one of those critically endangered species is likely to go extinct the other one likely isn't 
And uh, so that's what we're trying to identify so that we know what's what's going to fall through the cracks. And just to be able to recognize that and tell the community, hey, by the way, we're not giving any attention to this. And so, you know, if you're an up and coming conservationist, you're starting to start a new project or if you're an established organization looking to increase your impact, that's a great way to do it. Because if you want to jump in on the train for saving rhinos, like there's a lot of money, but now there's so many organizations working with rhinos that they, they, they pop up and they're actually, you know, just trying to scam. It's, it's getting, when anything gets too much money, there's somebody who's going to try to skim off the top, right? And most organizations are not doing that, right? But there are little ones. And uh, when I talk to my friends working on rhinos, where it's like, no, don't give money to that group because they actually don't know what they're doing kind of thing. But then whereas, so you, you, it's troublesome to jump on and do make any real impact where everybody else is working. But if there's somebody, nobody working on another species, you can have immense impact for way less effort. So it's it's all about being effective with our time and resources. And that's because we are incredibly bootstrapped like we we do not have enough money at current and and manpower to be able to save everything that we want to save and so it's a, we do have to make some decisions and to make those decisions we need adequate data and that's what we're trying to collect very interesting so a follow-up question to that it seems like there are a few problems here one is that you're saying there's too many endangered species and we can't save them all so we need to prioritize so is the underlying bottleneck here that there just isn't enough funding to save all these animals? Is like lack of funding or resources the main limitation here? Yeah, the easiest way to put this in perspective is so uh, the U.S. Philanthropic, philanthropically contributes over $450 billion a year, and that increases every year, uh, which is fantastic, right? We're the, we're the highest uh, contributors worldwide of any country. Uh, but then when you break that down, uh, it's humans receive well humans and our our pets receive somewhere up between 97 and 98 percent of all those contributions and so like essentially for one species and the species and those species that immediately like we require like cows and things though is we that one species gets 97 to 98 percent of all donations and then the other million plus species on earth get to suck off this last two percent and it's just not reasonable in any way that you conceive of it. So there needs to be a better balance there. And you know where that mark is, if it's 10% or 20, that's a really difficult question to ask. It's a very interesting one, um, but it's for not just for me to decide either. So again, we're just trying to make, trying to collect this data and let people know that there is this massive imbalance. It doesn't have to be like this. And if we can, if we see it, you know, people come up, a lot of times, like in the, the depths of social media comments and things, which are somewhat, uh, <laughs> they don't they don't highlight my day. Sometimes they'll come at us and say, you know, why aren't you working with humans? Like we humans have problems. Like, well, yeah, yes, we absolutely do, and we definitely need to be working on humans. Uh, but did you know, you know, that we get almost all the help, and the other million species get almost no help? And so when you really put it into perspective, that really shuts them down immediately. Like, oh, well, I guess. Yeah, I don't really have any any ground to stand on. We can't. Nobody's going to argue that you want a hundred percent of all donations going to you know just humans. That makes no sense, and it's not sustainable. And even if they did argue that, it's 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 not a wise decision because yeah, you lose your pollinators, you lose your uh, you know, if you lose all the out the uh, phytoplankton in the sea, you don't have any oxygen to to breathe anymore. So like, you kind of need these the ecosystem to persist. So it's 
makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, for sure. So you're gathering this database of all the species in need, and then you're looking at how many organizations are contributing to saving these species and how much funding is allocated to each species. And then you're kind of looking at the areas of balance and imbalance, right? So first of all, what's this project called? Is there a name for it? And then are there any noticeable or interesting trends that you would like to share? Right. It's called Connect and Conserve, connectandconserve.org. And it's in its alpha stage right now. We, the website's up. You can see some of the preliminary data. Um, and you and it's fun to, to look around on this. Uh, really, there hasn't been anything exceptionally uh, surprising to me about what we're doing. Uh, you know, it's it's mostly we're trying to figure out where where the money's going from the US to where um you know are we giving too much and it, because it's a lot a lot of this is in development that's why i say like we we can't be that surprised about anything but we're developing like a uh a conservation equitability index so you can take various features of every area and say okay well the US has this 10 billion dollars that we uh, donate uh, overseas, and we're going to give a lot of it to you know some percentage to Brazil, some percentage to Niger, some percentage to Thailand, and then you can say, okay, well, is that really the way that we should be uh, should be allocating these resources? And you can say, okay, well, based on the size of the country, based on the number of endemics, based on the number of edge species, based on you know the uh, number of critically endangered and endangered and everything else, you can pay, place all these values and all these features and then say, and then, and you have the, the amount, and then you can kind of make this comprehensive view of, well, we're actually giving too much money to Brazil, say that yeah, totally hypothetically, and we should be giving more money to, um, you know, Niger or Sudan or something. Sorry, when you say give out money to these developing countries like Thailand, Brazil, etc. What exactly do you mean by give out money? Yeah, right. So it, it's giving money to this is all nonprofit. So this is money from donations from individuals and corporations to profits in the United States. And then that then gets redistributed to nonprofits in other countries. So it'd be two nonprofits in Thailand in order to save tigers or elephants or whatever it is. Um, and there you can easily see how, you know, certain countries you know, based on proximity to the United States, based on a familiarity would uh, have, more, we would be biased towards giving more money than we uh, effectively should to those countries. So again, these aren't necessarily our decisions to make. I'm just putting out information out there so that we can send it to people like the Conservation Finance Alliance, where who manages like 300 plus million dollars a year when they dis distribute and they can have that information at hand and be like, oh, actually, you know, we see that we're spending too much money in Colombia and we should be spending more in Ecuador or something like that. Again, totally hypothetical. But um, that, that's something we're trying to look at. Got it. And to go down this rabbit hole even further, is this funding, are we just looking at like NGOs giving money to other NGOs in other countries? Or are we also talking about like government lending? So for example, we have the International Monetary Fund where countries or governments would lend money to these other countries. And there's a lot of terms and conditions that apply. Yeah, important distinction because it is, it's just the philanthropic nonprofits, nonprofits. And it, the government to government aids, uh, you know, that data is one hard for us to access. And 
Uh, it's also really vague. The way they break down the OECD is like a group of nations, developed nations that, uh, and they kind of give the best breakdown of how they spend this money. But a lot of governments and even nonprofits, they don't really, especially internationally, they, they don't do great record keeping, or at least they don't put it out there for everybody to look at because there's things they don't want people to see. And so they just don't want too much scrutiny. So then it's it's hard to really dig into that and get the, the facts. Um, and so we're, we're looking strictly at nonprofit funds, which we can then scrape public and private and government repositories that are accessible to us. Sometimes they're going to pay access. And then we can kind of uh, make educated guesses within uh, air range of what they're doing with that money. Uh, so it, sometimes it's just you donate to WWF and then it's, it distributes to WWF partner uh, like WWF South Africa or something like that, you know, and then we can, we can track that money. But even then within that, we have a lot of difficulty uh, very precisely figuring out what they're doing with that. Cause they don't say, they don't, they don't tell you what, what they're spending it on. If it's like, we spent, you can't just ask how much money do you spend on lions in South Africa, WWF? Like I, I, maybe they know because they have really good corporate accounting, but uh, most organizations wouldn't be able to tell you that readily. So we have to make, we come up with some ways that we can do this in a, uh, in kind of, I don't want to, I want to see creative ways of assessing this information that we can more or less gauge its accuracy. So that's, again, really, it's kind of complicated and it's, it's all coming out, but it's, a, it's all just nonprofit trying to figure out what we're doing. Got it. Thanks for clarifying that. So I want to take a step back and really understand how exactly do we save a species? So let's say there's a critically endangered frog somewhere in Ecuador. How exactly do we go about conserving that species? Okay, so the first step is, and one that the biodiversity group takes often is that we have to know that it's there. You know, we have to name it also. So you go into these, these ranges, especially in the Andes, it's the most biodiverse uh, like region on earth. And you go up there and it's really incredible. Like these expeditions are super fun for when you know what you're looking for. And even if you don't, you just get along for the ride and some crazy stuff. But so we go there and we can, we can discover something new because we know what already exists. And then we can describe it with local partners and we can put that up in, in through just the like academia route. And then once we know it's there, then we can, the generally, the next step is to get it assessed by IUCN, which we can also do the assessments and say, Okay, well, it's only within this, its occupancy area is this, and, you know, it's, we perceive threats of this, and so we can, they have a structure that says, okay, now we, we know it's critically endangered. So now we know that there's something there, it has a name, it's critically endangered. The next step is you have to ask for funds. Now that you can actually ask somebody, like, you can't ask somebody, like, I want to protect this thing, but we don't really know what it is. Like, that's harder than saying, well, we know where it is. So once you do that, the biodiversity group, uh, also, we go up to these uh, these reserves, and these land managers generally have a, a big area, and uh, researchers come and they do great science, but sometimes they don't take the greatest. Uh, they're not best at uh, PR and don't have the best media. So we take great photos and video uh, and do the great science, and all together we give that to the local land manager that is generally a nonprofit. And then with that, they can go and petition. They have all these resources and I can get into more resources that we actually contribute to them too. Then they can go and petition to uh, one of the big granting organizations and they say, okay, well, we have all these critically endangered animals, X, Y, and Z, and we're in this area and this is make this argument now a very solid argument that, you know, we need money to protect this area based on X, Y, and Z. 
if that is legitimate and the organization, the granting organization accepts that, then they can provide funding to then, you know, increase ranger patrols, uh, buy up adjacent areas and that kind of thing. So with the last, the big one that we've been working on lately was the Rio Mandiriaku Reserve in Ecuador. It's on the uh, Pacific version of Andes. Uh, really incredible area. It's managed by uh, Fundacion Ecominga and uh, Fundacion Condor Andino. And uh, those are all great organizations to support as well. But so we do a lot to try to make sure that they have what they need to uh, protect what needs to be protected. And with that, they were able to double uh, partially with our help, right? It's not just all of us, but a uh, big collective, we were able to double the size of the reserve uh, in based on all the recent and the promotional media that we created. And then once you actually, you can protect something like that, but then a big thing that's been happening in Ecuador, uh, I'm not sure if, I'm sure some of your audience has heard, I'm not sure if you have, but the, there's been a big rights uh, push for rights of nature. Uh, and since 2021, uh, it's it's been in the constitution since like 2008, I think. And so the Ecuadorian constitution says, you know, if you effectively, if you are going to cause an extinction in that country, it is unconstitutional because their nature has the rights to exist which I fully endorse. And so there's a couple of countries, including Panama, uh, that also have this um, these laws on books, which is fantastic. It's a trend that's moving in great direction. And that's been a saving grace because these there's been, uh, the Ecuadorian state is uh, hard up for cash. They didn't do well in the pandemic. And so they have a bunch of mineral wealth and that then creates a bias in their decision-making. So they end up selling these concessions, these big areas of land that are, on like private reserves are already established on like virgin forest you know these are like and every ridge of the andes has endemics like every just minute amounts of change within the the cloud the cloud forest how much moisture reaches that area and when it creates these uh, pockets of endemicity so you're actually which for the audience this means that these species are unique and you can't find them anywhere else in the world so they can only be found in one mountain for example exactly and they, they've so they've been there for you know hundreds of thousands millions of years and evolved and they've become these gorgeous amazing things that we barely know anything about and then you're selling these concessions but then you're going to create a massive disturbance within this very delicate ecosystem you're going to uh we know we've seen it all around the world, especially in third world countries or developing countries, sorry, that uh, these mining, big mining projects have spills, they have accidents, like they have them in the United States, not as much, right? It's, it's likely better to be mining in the United States than in Ecuador, but just because the controls are better. So, you know, we so the big one that happened was the Los Cedros uh, Reserve had a big concession from CHP Billiton, which is an Australian conglomerate. And there's a lot of interesting things we can go into with this, but, uh, Essentially, the mining conglomerate, they will uh, hire, they will go through a local subsidiary or uh, company that takes all the risk. It's like this little startup mining company and they do all the permits and they take all the risks. So CHP Bolton can have separation from it. And then, uh, and then that they tried, they get the, they buy the concession. They, they had then been illegally surveying, taking like going in without permission. They did that in Manuriaku and then they did it in Sethros. And then, uh, and then they are able to uh, figure out that, okay, there's gold and copper here. We're going to make a mine. And then we have to fight against it and say, okay, well, there's, you know, all these species here. And because we did the surveys and took the pretty photos and everything, we can show the courts, you know, when, when this goes to court, because it was this little central one was challenged in 2021 and went up to the Supreme court. And uh, at that point it was, we were really worried because usually these court cases don't play out well for nature. 
but in this case, we got super lucky and the court was in our favor. The judges uh, ruled that the mining concession that would have destroyed the Los Cedros Reserve and the Mandurioca Reserve because it was just downstream, the whole watershed would have been totally messed up. And uh, so they deemed it unconstitutional that it was going to um, infringe upon the rights of nature. And that was this massive win that set all this precedent within the country. We've had two other mining uh, concessions also be removed thereafter uh, in the, in the uh, next couple of years. And now there's this thing where certain individuals are having their lives threatened by other certain individuals uh, that are um, it, with the powers that are... <laughs> I have to be careful what I say here, but it's, it's like the, the, the powers that be don't like the momentum that conservation is gaining in that country. And so obviously they're going to resort to something you know shitty and it, they're threatening the lives of our uh, friends and colleagues down there. So they're not as willing to testify in court it, to be able to say like, okay, well, you're the, the mining companies, um, their environmental assessment was actually really shoddy. And, you know, we found all this other stuff that you didn't find. And it actually isn't, there's a Zadalopus toad and it's critically endangered. And then that's like the whole argument for everything. And if you can't have people testify to that, to, to, to that, then it's going to be a real big problem. So, um, so we're going to, we have a plan to go in and I can't say too much about it, but we're going to be trying to fix this problem in, uh, in a couple other expeditions, um, in, in some of, <laughs> I have to be really vague about this, but in some amount of time we're, we're going, we're going to be taking this data so that we can then, uh, testify internet like via zoom. So we don't have to worry about, um, people threatening our lives and that kind of thing. So it's alleviating pressure from the conservationists locally and still fighting and to protect your, to circle back to your initial question, like this is all in order to protect the frog that we then had discovered. And that's, and it's this whole thing. It's not simply go discover it and describe it and get some money. Like there's nothing's ever, you'll hear conservation say this, nothing's ever truly saved. Like it's you, you literally have a frog on a private reserve. You think you're fine, but then lo and behold, the government sells the land from up beneath you. And then you still have to fight for it. So it's like any number of things can happen and you have to adapt to that situation, whatever it gives you. All right, that was a very insightful and long answer. So let me just recap and let me know if I'm missing anything. So going back to our initial question, how do we even save or conserve a species? First of all, we need to go on expeditions. We need to find the thing. We need to know that it exists and then we need to make sure it is a new species. And then we need to get it assessed by the IUCN which basically determines whether it's endangered, critically endangered, etc. And then if it is endangered, if it does need conservation attention, then we need to ask for funding to protect that area and then potentially fight in court if that area is owned by something like a mining company or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. you're going to have, you discover it, but there's going to be any number of forces that threaten that uh, in the future so that you have to adapt to it and you have to have money to be able to protect it, whether it's increasing ranger patrols or fighting in court or simply protecting more land so that you don't get inbreeding, depression, something like that. Okay, so going back to the first stage, which is you go into these expeditions to find a new species and you name it. So how do you know that it is a new species? What's the definition of a new species? Well, I think there's 41 or 42 different like species uh theories of uh, species concepts out there so it really depends on who you talk to but in general it's something that's uh morphologically and genetically distinct 
enough and you can put draw lines in the sand maybe it's two percent or something a difference to make it different from one species to the other uh, sometimes different species are cryptic meaning that they they look very similar but they are genetically distinct and but that's all on a continuum too sometimes so like populations uh can differ and there's if there's a sufficient structure within that population then you can have subspecies break out and some people argue if subspecies are a real thing and then you, you have species and it, these are kind of all abstract concepts uh so it's that's a whole another thing you can go into but it's generally like what we always want to be able to define something and make it discrete and in order to do that you have to draw an arbitrary line in the sand and that's what we kind of do <laughs> but it's so you take the genetics you do a bunch of morphological measurements on it and then you can compare that to all the other close uh, closely related genera or, or comp specifics and then you can uh, and then you can make an assessment of whether it's new or not right and the reason why i got in touch with you in the first place is i saw your post on social media about this 3d scanning tool that you used to describe a new species of frog i think um so correct me if i'm wrong but traditionally how we would define a new species is we basically need to kill it we need to kill the poor thing put it in a jar of oil and then take its dna etc and then we need to quote unquote specimen it is that correct and then how does this 3d scanning help solve the issue of having to kill the poor thing yes that, that's been true for all but maybe one or two species described i think there was a primate that was described in africa without uh actual specimen because there was only one left and i believe some the other one's escaping me but yeah it, overall like you almost always collect what's called a type series and that can be you know three or more males and three or more females and then you capture the diversity you hopefully capture you know the representative diversity of that species when you say you collect it that means you ethically euthanize it and that depends on how you how to do that depending on the, the taxon and then uh from that you, you deposit it into a museum you preserve it in ethanol and then it's available for theoretically anybody else to be able to look at and to uh confirm that you, your observations were valid and that you know this measurement is true and that uh somebody else could do some future work on it if they wanted to look at you know something else uh, about the animal and do any further research those have been hugely valuable and, and they're like we're definitely not saying that that's something that we should stop i mean it's it is the only reasonable route that we've had to be able to do species research and but now you know the technology is advancing so we do have uh in certain cases we have an option to not actually euthanize these animals so if you have a critically endangered animal and you you essentially know that because you're in a really small habitat and you you have a good idea that it's probably isolated and you've been doing surveys for two weeks and you only found one uh so you wouldn't want to euthanize that because it could be the last female on earth and, you, and then you just literally uh you, you just curse that whole species to extinction so we haven't had any option to not euthanize it until this point and now the biodiversity group in partnership with sony electronics have developed the first field portable 3d scanner for wildlife so this is the first time ever that we are able to just pull this thing out in like a 25 liter backpack one person can operate it we can go out there and we can rediscover species or discover new species in the mo most remote jungle and without any power or anything we can we can bring out our own and uh, scan this animal we get a 3d a very accurate 3d representation of that animal which we can then uh we do a bunch of post uh work with the, with the laptop and then we can upload that to an online database which serves as the museum 
And then everybody instantaneously across the world can gain access to that specimen instead of it being siloed in a, you know, in a museum in Quito. And you probably have to know the, you know, the curator to be able to get access to it and you can't access it on weekends. It's like, it's kind of hard to access specimens sometimes. So this like democratizes access immediately, which is fantastic. And they've shown there was recent papers came out that said like, and the more access you have to these animals, the more publications you get out of it. So, you know, it, a big limitation is simply being able to access them. And that this, so this 3D scans, even if they weren't supplanting the uh, need or the euthanization in certain cases, it you would still want to 3D scan the, a lot of animals just because it uh, democratizes access. And then the other aspect to this is uh, we can get we can actually gain additional data from these specimens that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise so like in general you, you take these 2d measurements of animals like what's a finger length or you know between the eyes and things like that uh and now with the 3d representations we can take these volumetric morph morphometrics we can take these measurements of like the volume of a head or the body and then compare it quantitatively uh, automatically between all the 3d scans that you created and then compare that to all the 3d scans of another species and then it not only saves you time, but you gain an additional metric to be able to distinguish one species from another. That's all really cool for scientists. Maybe it goes over the head of some people, but trust me, it's really neat. The other really incredible thing about these 3D scans uh, that I think people really latch onto is that the it's going to forever change how we engage the youth and public about wildlife. Because now with this 3D scan, you can have, like we're in January, we're having a big presentation to you know dozens of classrooms at the same time where we can have these 3D animals be like you can put vr goggles on you can shrink down to the size of the animal you can blow the animal up to the size of a, of a building you can have it hop on to the hand of the kid and then speak to it like a human would so like you're anthropomorphizing the, the animal and kind of helping to bridge that uh gap between human and non-human if it's speaking your language and it has mouth movements like yours then you you can relate to it more and care so then it's having those as as uh accessible options and are, is huge for wildlife, uh, like outreach and engagement and for zoos, for nonprofits, for individuals, everybody. Right. So when I first heard that to define a new species, you need to specimen it, which means you need to kill it, put it in a jar and have it in a museum. That was really shocking to me because I was thinking this seems like a technology in the 1980s or something like we've had 3D scanning for a long time. We, we already have this technology for decades where we can just take a sample of skin or a blood sample and get their DNA. So what's the rationale for still needing to kill a frog in order to define it as a new species? Like, couldn't we just use a more non-invasive way to do this? So I, like, it's hard because I don't think there really was a good rationale for euthanizing something that was like that critically endangered, right? It's just like, it wasn't ethical to do so. And I think a lot of people did avoid doing that. Um, but like I said, going back to the right, or even any species, like it doesn't have to be critically endangered. But why do we even need to kill it if we can just take a blood sample to get its DNA? We can take a video of it. We can do a three D scan. Right. So the the big rationale is, and what will still continue to happen for a long time, probably is, you know, when you have the specimen in a jar, we don't know all the questions to ask right now. Like we can't be that presumptuous to think that we know everything. You know, we can get all the data we need now and never need anymore. So when we have specimens, especially, you know, back before we had good cameras or anything else, then, you know, that was, that was really the only way to do it. You go out and you collect something and now, you know, 
we can do research and we can go back to that specimen from 150 years ago and say like, okay, well actually, you know, it turns out it was this and that means something really important um, that it was overlooked by the researcher at the time. And that could still happen 150 years ago or 150 years from now, where some researcher comes in and be like, oh, those people in 2023 didn't know what they were doing and they forgot this thing and this. And so you have to have some kind of good reference point to be able to base the scientific arguments and, and, and description like and, and what you're trying to claim. So that's really why you have this, this specimen. And when there's a big population of things and it's not because conservation is always worried about populations usually. And sometimes the population is only a single individual, unfortunately. Uh, but generally it's not. And so when you take, you know, when, when you euthanize a, a series of maybe six, but there's, you know, 20,000 left, that's, you know, the percentage of that, it's not really ha having that huge of an effect, hopefully. Uh, so then it, the argument against doing that becomes a little bit less. So really the 3D scans, while they are definitely should be, uh, we definitely advise people to do them concurrently with any euthanization, like even if they're going to pursue euthanization, you can still 3D scan it in real life and gain additional data. But then when you do euthanize it, uh, you can get certain things like you could dissect, you know, you get internal morphologies. Um, you can look at the retina, you can like do electron scanning on the skin and dermis, and you can do all kinds of things that you wouldn't be able to do with just a digital specimen. But if we're only interested in describing a species and being able to be like, hey, you know, this really needs adequate conservation attention right away because or else we're going to lose it, uh, which is a lot, unfortunately, at this place in time. And then there isn't a good argument against using the 3D scans for those critically endangered or even just endangered animals that you need to get access immediately to everybody. And, uh, and you're worried that the population will take a hit if you take those out of the uh, out of those mature individuals out of the population. Okay, got it. That makes more sense. So anything else you want to mention about the 3D scanning system? Is it basically like an object that you put in your backpack and then when you go on these expeditions and you find something, you, you just put like a frog in this box or this container and it would take a 3D scan? Yeah, so we worked with like a photogrammetry expert and, and he collaborated with us and we created this thing. And it's uh, essentially like an upside down tripod, but it's this rotating set of Sony cameras that we can then take, you know, photos of eventual endorsable aspect of the animal and then combine that all into one cohesive 3d model uh the thing is like the, the big problem what i want to emphasize here is that currently i'm the only one on earth who can do this and that's not a brag that's a problem like i me myself i can only have so much impact and be in so many places so what we really are struggling with now is to get people to invest into designing this, this is the second version of the 3d scanner so that it's even it's cheaper because right now it's running the cost of like seventy five hundred dollars to be able to create this and for conservation that's a lot of money um so and it's also intensely technical to be able to achieve um so we need to simplify the model which i already designed this thing like it's already the idea is already there and it's um i think it'll work out we simply need people to come in and help us, you know, CAD design and, uh, and get this thing, you know, from uh, idea to product. And so that we can get it out to conservationists, researchers, and citizen scientists around the world for that. They can actually afford it and use it. And then it will have a big impact right now. It's pretty much a proof of concept. We, we have used it and we have taken scans out in the jungle and it has helped us, but it's, uh, we need more people to be able to use it, to be able to have, um, the impact that we really desire out of it. 
And so, and for that, we need people, we need like, it's only like 20 grand to be able to design this new tech, which is nothing in the tech world. So it's kind of astonishing to me how people are really not jumping in on this opportunity to have such a huge impact for such a low cost. Like that's what all the biodiversity group does is like, we, we literally created this 3D scanner the first time in the world we can do this 3D scan. And I think the biodiversity group spent less than a thousand dollars on everything because we got it donated from Sony. And then the rest of it I used in like all my photography travel that had all kinds of other gear and rails and stuff that I just, we created it. So it's like, we did something a world first for under a thousand bucks. And now we're just, and now we're trying to, you know, get it out to the entire world for 20,000. And then it's, it's like, why it, it's such a no brainer to be able to support. Um, so I hope somebody out there is interested in doing that. Yeah. Let me see if I have any connections to relay to you. I, I know a few folks in like AI, VR, AR, and this technology isn't new. Like we already have this technology. Yeah, I've right. seen some product videos or trailers where you don't even need multiple cameras. You just use your phone's camera to scan, for example, a room and it can reconstruct everything very accurately, including the furniture and all the items that are all, all over the room. I think like Apple and Google can already do this, but I don't know if they released it yet. I don't know if they released it yet. It's true. Just the point that you can't do that for the science of it, though, because we need stuff to be you can't just extrapolate. You need to you need it to be within certain degrees of accuracy. Oh, so I see. in order for this to be accepted by the scientific community, you have to actually have it, it valid data and not just guess data. Right. It's, it's incredible technology. All right. So we found a new species. The next step is we need to submit it to the IUCN to assess if it's critically endangered or endangered or if it's if it doesn't even need conservation attention. So can you briefly describe how that process works? Yeah, so I went over it a little bit, but it's like these, there's these species specialist groups, of which I'm a member of several of them. So is my uh, director of research, Ross Maynard, who usually handles the uh, the assessments for ICN for us. Um, so we say like uh, Amokleophis fulgurai, which is a big name for uh, fulgur's shadow snake. It was a species that we had rediscovered in uh, Rio Mandurioca Reserve in Ecuador, and it hadn't been seen in 54 years. It's this really incredible animal, has this really interesting uh, skeletal structure, and uh, We've only ever found two of them, and we know that there's a different, you know, a couple other specimens from Colombia, but of probably a different species. So, like, we we gather all the data that we can that's been published, and from like any any rumors that we have within our network of of pertaining to that species, and then we take all that data, we put it through this rubric that IUCN has, International Union for Conservation of Nature, and they're the the authority for all this, and then uh, it turn like a kind of a score at the end and it tells you, okay, well, it, it falls into this category of for this reason. And then that gets authorized by the ICN and then it gets posted and to the red list or the red book. And, uh, and then that's official. And that's like a big step because you can't really ask the Ecuadorian government to put in any protections until they have essentially this, uh, the IUCN approval on that, which is the only conservation organization that sits on the UN. Like, so they have a lot of sway. Um, so that's like, one of the big steps. Right. So the main outcome of this step is to classify how endangered the species is. Right. And that then tells people it's worthy of their attention. Got it. So let's say we do find that this new frog that we discovered is endangered. So the next step you mentioned is to ask for funding to protect this area where we found the frog, correct? So can you go into more details on who to ask for funding and how does this all work? How do you allocate these resources right so you know if you have an institute program like an in-place program and you're you have the uh, piece of land that you're protecting and you maybe have 
some other forest that you want to incorporate into it, you need money to be able to purchase it and to pay the lawyers to be able to get the titles in place and everything else. So we, you can get that money in various ways. You can apply for grants uh, and you can apply uh, through for like corporate CSR funds or just through general donation campaigns. And, you know, your end goal is simply to, to likely to protect something, but you can do so in a lot of different ways through its community involvement, through uh, agroforestry, through uh, just ranger, like it's just protecting an area. Um, so that really depends on the case, like the actual case. Um, they, they each vary case by case is what I'm trying to say. Um, but so the actually the acquiring the funds is part of what we're the biodiversity group helps other organizations do as well. So when you're it's somewhat interesting to some people, I won't go into too long, but uh, when you're an international organization, you're small, senior Democratic Republic Congo, uh, and you're asking people for donations, where do you want to go for donations or trying to get for, to, to grant asking for grants? And most of those come from the United States, like we had gone over 450 billion in all, uh, total philanthropic contributions. So, but you don't speak English, you speak French, and you're also a small organization and you don't have a lot of money to make yourself look good or do any proper marketing. So in essence, like when you're somebody like a corporation or a grant committee and you're looking through it and you're somebody that's, you know, well-organized and looks well-organized, it has a greater chance of getting funded than somebody who doesn't. And it looks like a ragtag group of people that maybe that you don't have any reliable way to know if they're trustworthy or not. So we go out and vet these organizations. We can then support them. We give them fiscal sponsorships in this new, this novel structure we created, which we called an altruistic fiscal sponsorship, which is a mouthful. But so we're basically, we give them bank account access in the United States and, the, and a nonprofit corporation in the United States. And then they can look really professional and they deserve to look professional because they are legitimate. And then they can much easier, have a much easier time petitioning for funds and to act, ask for money to be sent domestically from the U.S. to within the U.S. than from going to the U.S. to DRC. Um, and it just gives them the opportunity. Some grants don't even allow not, uh, foreign organizations to apply because they only want to be able to have that uh, that money go in a tax-deductible tax way to somebody within the U.S., an organization within the U.S. So being able to provide that kind of, these kind of fiscal resources for organizations is huge because you can't protect something if you don't have any money. And this is a money is always it's always the thing like we just don't have enough of it it's too hard to get it's too hard to ask and so we try to make these things all easier for people we have a giant grant grant database and we help people these organizations write grants to be able to actually get the funds so there's like this comprehensive way of us to be able to go to an area help the organization decide what's like figure out what's in their organs uh what's in their protected area uh what they need to do to protect it how to get the money to protect it and then and actually have a successful project and so that's by and large what the biodiversity group does got it got it and then moving on to the last stage that you mentioned there's a constitution regarding the right of nature right and if so it would be unconstitutional if you do some activity that could push a species to extinction and this constitution is present in a few countries so does that basically mean like if we find an endangered species in a particular area and if there are activities such as mining or forestry or anything that could potentially push this species to extinction, then legally we have a chance to fight for and protect that area? Is that basically how it works? Yeah, exactly. And there's a bunch of movements to try to get the rights of nature enshrined in their country constitutions. Uh, so to, to 
this is spreading. I think New Zealand's also done it. And, and so it, it's a big movement. It's a great movement. Um, we're not necessarily uh, party to that. We're, we're simply benefiting from it being in the Constitution. We work with like a nonprofit lawyer group within Ecuador to be able to uphold the law. And so like to set the precedence, which we, uh, like I said, the big collective we have done with that list of those case and, and now moving on to a couple others. So it's it's a it's another tool in our arsenal to protect things. Um, but again, like threats come from all fronts and that's just one front. Right. Do you have an idea of what's the sentiment towards conservation for these people who are living in these developed countries? Because I would imagine many of them are living in poverty, so they might need to depend on these activities like mining or logging or resource extraction so they can make more money and have a better livelihood for their families. So what's their sentiment towards like conservation and actually protecting their natural resources? Right. So, you know, you're talking about everybody, but in general, my experience has been, whether it's with indigenous groups or just local uh, communities, they all recognize the importance of nature and the beauty of it. And, but they don't weigh it more than, uh, and obviously they wouldn't make, weigh it more than their own livelihoods. And that's always the the equation here. So, you know, you go into a community and they don't have jobs and they see themselves as struggling, uh, even though, you know, they're you know, not necessarily struggling for food or anything, but they, they want a new phone, that kind of thing. They get caught in the, uh, like the modernity cycle. So, uh, whatever they, they value that more than preserving that forest that so they will continue to cut down plant, plant plantations, uh, or do or sell out to the mining companies so that they can have those things that they think that they need or that they actually do need. And so it's really about, you know, when you talk to, that's when you talk to adults, because that's where they're, they're where their mind's at. If you t- initially talk to children, a lot of times they'll actually be scared at first, but then they very quickly pivot to being absolutely fascinated by all of it and wanting to protect it all. So it's a really great route to be able to uh, impact it, to take the children out and engage them so that they can, the children can then take that message home and kind of like this bottom-up approach where it goes through the ch- through us to the children up to the parents and then they'll believe it more and value it more because their child values it. Uh, so it's like there's, again, different ways of approaching it. and But like I said, in general, even if stuff like you have these indigenous hunter-gatherer groups or, or subsistence hunters, and they'll know that they're having a harder time hunting and they don't necessarily know why or what they can do about it. But they're like, yeah, I know we don't have any more pangolin here. Like we don't, you know, we're, we're struggling now. We're having to supplement with this other like crop or something like that. And they don't want that to happen, but they nobody's engaging them. They don't have a uh, quality education. You can't really blame them for any of this. So it's, uh, it's all, a, a lot of it is education, but uh, education only goes so far and you need them to be actually able to feel the need to do that. And so that it's like a multi-pronged approach to be able to convince them. So for our listener who feels passionate about this issue, they want to do something to contribute to giving more conservation attention to species in need. What are some action items that they can start doing today? What would you recommend? It really like, so there's, a lot of opportunities, especially if you go to um, conservation careers, uh, it's a website and they help people switch from one career to another, or just find opportunities on the side where if you have professional skill sets, then you can apply them towards various conservation programs uh, and they can kind of figure out a way for you to, to fit your skill set in there. Uh, we have different things. Like if you're, like you say, somebody who's developing AR or we have AI projects and we have uh, we need people to do like all kinds of different I mean, marketing, social media campaigns, all kinds of stuff like that. So if you have extra time and you want and you have those skill sets, then please you just 
doesn't have to be the biodiversity group. You could ask somebody else, try to try to make sure it's a small organization that you're trying to support because when you support a small organization versus a large one, your, your time is much more effective because we, you know, are, we, you donate a hundred dollars to the biodiversity group. It goes straight to a program and actually has a real impact. But if you donate a hundred dollars to the WWF, then it goes to, you know, electricity or, you know, office lease costs and stuff like that. So, you know, just per time and per unit uh, money, it makes a lot more sense to help small nonprofits. And you can also just simply share things on social media, trying to get combat visual dilution and get people to care about, you know, wildlife. And it, you know, now there's all this AI wildlife videos coming out and then like trying to compete against dance videos is really difficult. So it's like just being able to you yourself be uh, putting your attention where it's most beneficial. So if you click on something and like something from a nonprofit and something that's a, a progressive thing, then your the algorithm is going to keep that coming to you. And then every time you do that, it's also going to leak over to the rest of the community so that it gets shown to them more too. So like even that, that simple act of just curating your feeds and so is, is helpful. And then again, like, Really, the biggest thing is money. I hate to say that. Like, I, I actually hate money, but it's uh, it's what we need, and and without it, we can't really have an impact. So, um, we're one of the most effective nonprofits, literally on earth. Ninety four percent goes to uh, all programs that my actual conservation programs. We don't get paid salaries. We're all very dedicated volunteers. This is our lives. I have a successful com- consulting company on the side, so I don't need the salary from the biodiversity group. So that all means that. You know, I can put all my spare time into developing things that are, you know, might not be financially sustainable, like economically viable. So they're not going to make us money, but they need to happen. And that's the, this giant gap in the world where, you know, we don't fund things that if they're not economically viable, well, the biodiversity, biodiversity group can do those things because we can take those risks and we don't need we don't need the funds uh, coming back. So that's that's kind of things to consider when you're looking to support something. Okay, so you mentioned selecting smaller nonprofits so that each dollar you put in would have a higher impact, it would have a higher ROI. So what's some advice on how we can select a good small nonprofit to donate to? Like, do we look at their balance sheet or income statement or something else? So any nonprofit within the United States uh, and it's, it will have a 990 that they submit and that is publicly available. Generally, it's, you can't get the ones that are the newest like one or two years because the IRS is just really slow. But uh, you can view that and you can and you can look and see the breakdown. It's a little technical, but it, you can see you know how much went to salaries and kind of how much went to other things. And so you can see like what kind of purposes they had and where, where they put the money. That that is a way to do it. It's a very uh, in depth way of doing that, probably the most in depth. But then you can also simply speak to them. You can peruse their social media. You can. Uh, see what kind of things they're doing, but where if they're just jumping on trends and switching to time and time again, or if they, you know, the, if their mission aligns with if your heart and and you want to support them. Uh, in general, in, luckily with the nonprofit sector, you know, most of us are just very passionate individuals trying to do the best that we can. So, uh, of any sector, it's really like you can just throw a dart at the conservation or especially the conservation sector and just find a good organization and be and be happy with it. And like I said, the real distinction for me when I advise people to do this is to get a small nonprofit versus a big one. To, be, to put even more perspective, big. So of that two percent, essentially, that goes to all other species on Earth that, cons- that conservation gets. Uh, that's the two percent of all philanthropic donations. 
uh, large, the top 10 organizations get something like 75% of that 2% of donations. So then the other over like 8,000 organizations then get 25% of that 2%. And so it's like, we're fighting for crumbs. Like it's, you know, we need, we need people to support these small nonprofits. It's like, it's hilarious. It's almost comical how bad the situation is that we're trying to prevent the sixth mass extinction, like this biodiversity collapse. And yet we're giving 2% to, to the world. I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? This is insane. I just thought of a theoretical question. I don't know if you would have the answer to it, but I heard of a statistic where it's something like 1% of the people in the United States have 99% of the wealth. So there's like a very small group of ultra wealthy billionaires out there, which I know like a lot of them are donating or funding innovation like AI, biotech, etc. But if we can get them to donate more to conservation, to saving these lesser known species, is that enough money? Do you think this would be enough to alleviate a large part of the problem? Well, I mean, yes, obviously. The, it comes with its own problems because then you, when you distribute that kind of funding, you get these things called beltway bandits. And they like, they, so if you're a big billionaire, like I, I do have some sympathy for you where you try, if you try to donate that, much, that amount of money, it's really hard to do that effectively. And so you then end up going through these like middle organizations they're called the bellboy bandits where they take a giant chunk off of themselves and then distribute to other people but then they generally have really poor follow-up and they just kind of whoever has the most attractive proposal gets it but then like they'll just buy shit for themselves and so there's a lot of problems when you try to distribute big funding that's why i also recommend doing it to small organizations because it's like we have a better governmental structure to manage those funds and so in general, it's people have estimated in the past that we need something uh, north of $100 billion a year to prevent extinctions and the biodiversity group collapse or biodiversity collapse. And, you know, relatively speaking, that is fucking nothing. That's it's, it's literally a drop in the bucket, globally speaking. I mean, we're talking about you know tens of trillions of dollars globally, and you're, you're asking for $100 billion and to save the planet. So it's like, it's really not that much to ask. We don't have that right now. Uh, we're still gathering the data to figure out how much we do have. Uh, it's likely somewhere around uh, maybe a fifth of what we need. Um, so we we definitely need to increase the total pool of funding and do so in effective ways. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a huge problem and really like to really emphasize this. This is the most important time to be a conservationist in history. Like you, literally anything that we do now. The, the, the lineages that we protect now will then exist for an additional you know, tens of thousands of years of human progress. Like if we don't kill ourselves, like your kids 10,000 years from now will still be able to benefit from the impact that you had today by saving a species of that ecosystem that can, will take tens of millions of years to then to recoup and it would be totally different anyway. So like on human timescales, like it's incredibly important that we, save what is already there because it's we're not going to get it back in any reasonable amount of time that we would benefit from so i just make it this like the long-termist view like you can have you can spend such a little amount of money now and have such a you know a million x impact in the future by just saving the things now so we don't have to recreate it or um or just remember it and, ne and nobody ever gets to enjoy it again for the next next 100 trillion people that exist don't get to enjoy the amazon like that would be a travesty but we can stop it now so that's why it's the most important time on earth ever to be able to protect these species and habitats hmm. 
Right. Another high-level, super-theoretical question. I'm trying to pinpoint what are some main areas we can tackle to solve a majority of the problem. So one is money, right? So let's say if we had enough money to buy this plot of land off this mining company, then we can protect it. Simple as that. And then number two is law. So if we can somehow push for a change in the legislature so that it favors conservation, it favors protecting areas that are threatened or endangered or that contain, you know, a, a large pocket of biodiversity, then we can also protect it. Number three is education. So if we can educate the community to be more passionate about nature, to be more aware of the value of the natural resources that they have, then they would intrinsically not be willing to destroy that area for mining or resource extraction. So like three main things here. One is money, two is law, three is education. Which of those three things, if we can only focus on one, would you think would have the biggest impact at a global scale? I mean, if I think about it, like in a comprehensive way, it would be the education because with education comes the donations, comes the money. Like if everybody understood what was happening and felt the need to act, then that engagement would, everything else comes after that. So we first just need to be able to convince people to take the right actions and and do the right things. And that's another thing with these 3D scans. You know, have you, I'm sure a lot of your audience has also had an experience where if you go, went to a zoo or some kind of event where they had animals at the event and you, you could like, and you could interact with them, you touch the snake or you, you, you hold, the, hold the frog or feed the flamingo, whatever it is, that leaves, especially if that's your first one, that leaves a huge impact on you. And it changes, especially children, it changes their whole perspective and it could change them from having one career choice to another. And I know it did for me, but what we're trying to do with these 3D scans, like, so we, I can put out all the great social media and I can tell you all the cool facts about this species and you can you can tell me you can come back and be like no that's really neat like i, I like objectively like you you really have me that was cool but i'm not gonna like they're not gonna change anything because they didn't feel anything from it they only thought conceptually about it so then when you have these 3d scans like i didn't have a frog to show them to hold the, have them hold this epic frog that i'm talking about because it's there's only two left and they're in the jungle so with a 3d scan they can literally with augmented reality they can hold it in their hand in a the most close to physical way that they possibly could and then have this personal interaction with them that can then impact how they feel. And then that's how they're going to get behavior change. So be able to do that. And like right now, I, you know, I can do these presentations. I've done them before. You can go in front of, you know, a classroom or even multiple classrooms and, and do it and have a great impact. But again, that's me and only, you know, a hundred people at a time, maybe if you're lucky. And then, but if I can do this at scale and have like an app that we can just have these things, these animal interactions happen to you know, tens of millions of people every day, then, you know, there's the impact. There's, you're going to get the education and the, and the engagement that's going to create real behavior change and a real uh, continuous zeitgeist shift in the right direction. And so that's what we're hoping these 3D scans will also contribute to. That makes sense. Well, you're doing a lot of awesome things from leading the biodiversity group to creating that 3D scanning software to defeating that mining company in court. So I'm curious, what's your story and how did you get to where you are today? It's, it's a, it was a long journey, man. It's uh, yeah. I went. Um, I'll, do, I'll keep it brief. The I wanted to be an entomological systemist. I wanted to just go and collect bugs in the Amazon until I was in freshman year of college. And when I did that, well, I still do actually. But uh, I went and my I thought I had this career path figured out. And then I talked to uh, the entomological curator at the U University of Arizona, and then he abruptly told me like, no, don't 
take that path. Like, and I, it just broke me. I was like, wait, what? And he's like, no, there's no money in it. You can't, you can't really pursue that. It's not reasonable. So then I went in and I fumbled around. I landed in genetics. I did a started a PhD for two years on genetic engineering. And then uh, I dropped out of that as soon as I got an offer to do these consulting jobs, which I continue to do, which is essentially like kind of glorified birding. You, you just you go out and you're on these big construction projects and you uh, ensure they're within environmental compliance, which means you protect nests and threatened species. So you're kind of just surveying the whole time and making sure that you know what they're going to do and make sure and uh, all the laws are upheld. So that allows me to have a lot of time and some extra cash to be able to do these very privileged things like wildlife conservation, unfortunately, is a very privileged uh, occupation. And even though I struggle immensely with it. And so in 2013, I, that was two year, that was like a year after I quit my PhD, I went to Bangladesh. I heard about this guy, Cesar Rahman, and he was doing work with Burmese pythons out there and he needed some help. And I came out there to be the intersalomic implantation sur surgery specialist. And because I had I had seen this done twice and I was confident that I could do it myself. And in fact, I did. It was fine. Um, it was a risky move, but it's a lot of a lot of times you just got to fake it till you make it. And we had a very successful project, never had any deaths with these pythons. We put these transmitters into them and did this huge study and uh, discovered a lot of things about the government that were uh, when they were relocating these pythons. Effective way to do it to keep the. Um, human wildlife conflict at, at bay because they would eat the ducks and the villagers would kill them and that kind of thing. So then we realized that the research was, you know, it's important, but it's not the end all be all. And really wildlife doesn't need to be as managed much as people do. So then you go into the wildlife conservation, which is really managing people a lot. And uh, we started, we created the Creative Conservation Alliance, which is now like one of the most successful conservation organizations in the country. And uh, I since kind of left that officially in 2019. There's a whole bunch of stories I can get into about that. Again, kind of getting kicked out of the country for ridiculous reasons. And um, it's it's a whole thing. But uh, so they're still doing great work. I still, we, the biodiversity group still supports them with the fiscal sponsorship and everything. And we're still published together. And we'll be running a workshop there next year, actually, uh, in likely in earlier summer. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned to our social media because we'll resume these really popular uh, workshops and we take people out and see the pythons or see pangolins and do camera trapping and work with the indigenous and, and so it's a lot of fun and, and i'm also a professional photographer so i teach people how to do photography and um but yeah so then in 2018 the so like a year before i was leaving biodiversity uh the creative conservation alliance the executive director and the founder founding executive director of the biodiversity group paul hamilton he was burning out with the organization because it, it's really hard to do these uh, nonprofits. It takes a lot out of you. Um, I can definitely speak from personal experience with that. And it's really just a challenge because you you see something that's so critically vital and then, you know, you just, it falls on deaf ears a lot and people just don't have the right sense of where to put money and where not to. So uh, it's a struggle to do this. I kind of restructured the biodiversity. So I, he, he bailed. He, he didn't want to be part of the biodiversity group anymore. I took it over and it was a great end up being a great platform for me to be able to execute all my crazy ideas like 3d scanning wildlife for creating uh we have this ask darwin ai that for researchers and, and public and stuff like that so i can do all this crazy fun stuff that has really great impacts and and that was in 2018 when i started that and it was a really great transition going out of the creative conservation lines into the biodiversity group and then here we are now and i'm still managing it and still 
Uh, the biodiversity group's doing great. We're, we have a lot of great momentum going forward, and it's just about getting the right buy-in from people so that we can have the impact that we uh, we know we can. So that's it in a nutshell. That's a very inspiring story. So thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned a point that really resonates with me, which is that people in conservation are pretty damn poor. It's really hard for them to make money. Like most people, they just end up with like consulting jobs or doing environmental assessments for these mining companies. It pays very little and they're not really carrying out their noble mission. I, I doubt this is what people in conservation ultimately would love to do. And like you mentioned, this field of conservation, it's a very privileged thing and you, you need to have enough money yet. You need to have enough resources to go on your noble mission. So what advice would you give people in conservation who are stuck doing these boring consulting jobs, but would much rather contribute to, you know, saving species and actually making a difference? Yeah. So again, it's all going to be case dependent. Like a, the effect of altruism movement, they were, you know, they, they talk about, well, the biggest impact you can have is just, or one of the biggest ways you can have a big impact is to generate a lot of money and then just donate it to good causes. And that is a great model. And uh, it kind of got them in trouble a little bit. But anyhow, the, uh, so you, you can go that route. Obviously, you need to sustain yourself. If you can't sustain yourself, you can't sustain uh, a passion and like, especially one that is, is outward and, and trying to give. So to be a caretaker of the world, you have to care for yourself. And that means you do need to have some money. Uh, if you go to there, I mean, there's a lot of things we can talk about here, but if you like, I'm moving to Panama soon and it's a lot cheaper to live there. So the, my, the upkeep for my life is less. So that means I can dedicate more time and effort to things that you know, matter to me in the world. And so you can leverage those kind of geographic uh, discrepancies where if you can make money in the United States, then go, but you live in a different country, it's way cheaper. That is incredibly helpful and also it really just nourishes my soul to be living in a jungle so that's just for me though uh if you you know it again like just look broadly look and see what other there's not anything really that unique about the conservation sector when you really dig into it like it these problems happen everywhere just to different extents and so if you can see how other industries have dealt with it if you you know what what makes other uh, profession successful how are they engaging the public you know what what does that look like and compare that to what you know a non-successful thing is like if you're only putting out dry media and it's really academic sounding and stuff like probably not going to be that effective so figure out what like a really popular tiktoker does so that you can get that engagement that is required to do anything nowadays so there, there's that um but yeah it's like i said just think creatively too don't let somebody tell you that it can't happen, you know, it's be smart about it, but you know, take, you can take some risks, especially if you're younger, uh, and just keep your horizons broad. Cause, and I guess one other thing I'll say to that is it's something I lived by was I, I pretty much said yes to everything and then started saying no to everything once I was turned about, you know, 33. So you just keep yourself open to opportunities when you're young. And then, uh, and it didn't really ever, you know, steer me wrong. Like I got so such a, vast array of experiences that contributes to all the decision making I make now. So uh, when you have the time, definitely say to say yes to random things and just have a good time with it. Well, there's a lot of gold nuggets there. So thanks for sharing all those insights. From your years of work and experience in this field, if you could distill it down to three main lessons or call to actions that you would like to share with our audience, what would that be? Uh, I think the first one is just persistence. When you know that what you're doing and you feel what you're doing is right, you know, a lot of 
evidence to support that, then just persist. Like it, almost any conservationist, conservationist I see that tries something and continues to try succeed. So it's really about how much everything in life is about how much you're willing to sacrifice in order to attain it. So if you're going into conservation, know that you're going to have to sacrifice a lot. It some parts are glamorous, most of it is not. Um, you know, the field work is fantastic. Make sh- <laughs> at least it, for me, it was like make sure I continue to do field work because if you only do admin, then you get totally burnt out. So make sure you try to find a balance, which is probably the hardest thing in life. But um, so I'd be one. Uh, two would be like always continue learning. Don't think that like you had a best practice you read best practices and they were from 2009, like, you know, best practices should evolve. Like everything you're learning should evolve. Everything changes, especially now when the rate of change itself is increasing around the world. So just always keep on top of things and look at like a broad array of discussions and viewpoints. If you're only within a certain activist community, then you only hear that and you get your echo chamber and there can be a lot of valid points there. But when you, no, no single community is right on everything. So if you listen to other points of view, and I do this a lot, and I listen to like tech stuff and from other billionaires and things like that, just to figure out how the world works and, and what's happening, that puts the biodiversity group at a great position where we can leverage new technologies and not get caught in something that a pitfall that others have, or I can generate new ideas and take them from one sector and put them into another. So like, just keeping it learn and learn broadly. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for coming on and sharing your insights. Please hand off to the audience where they can contact you, learn more about your work, or any other resources you would like to share. Sure. So the, the biodiversity group is, you know, we have our webpage, we have all the social media, we can just, just search for it. You can search for my name. It's all out there. Very easy to find. We even have TikTok. It's not super active, but um, so we do a lot of a lot of cool stuff. It is actually worth a follow. We try not to be dry like a lot of other nonprofits are and try to have some character. And um, yeah, so just follow the website and all the links are there. That's it for this episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed this content, please remember to leave a rating and review in whatever podcast platform you listen to. This really helps the show get promoted by the algorithm and get shown to more people. Thanks for tuning in and we'll meet again next episode.